I don't know if you've ever had occasion to write a letter, more likely these days send an email, but let's call it a letter uh, to a friend, and uh, you're perhaps trying to iron out a recent misunderstanding, or you're endeavouring to challenge them about some issue that has perhaps come between us. And you write your letter, and you leave it in the very capable hands of Royal Mail, and you expect them to uh, deliver your letter to your friend, and then you wait a little anxiously for your friend's reply, and you trust that it will be a good outcome, a positive reply. Friends, this is the background to the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Church of God at Corinth. He'd written an earlier letter, less than 12 months earlier. We call it the first letter uh, of Paul to the Corinthians. He'd answered a series of questions, and he'd also been dealing with some issues that had arisen in the life of that church, in terms of factions and also in terms of moral matters. And he'd also heard that false apostles and false teachers had crept in unawares into that fellowship of the Lord's people. And these false teachers were questioning the apostles' integrity and his authority as an apostle of Christ. So 2 Corinthians is perhaps one of the apostles' most personal letters. He reveals much about himself particularly pertaining to his apostolic ministry among the churches. But there is also profound theology in these pages too, because we read about some teaching concerning the new covenant. We also read as we move into these chapters of the earthly and heavenly dwellings of the ministry of reconciliation. So for our purposes, God willing, Uh, I intend to just look into toward the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 through to the end of chapter 5. This second letter was written in AD 55, probably from the city of Philippi. And we notice uh, that at the beginning of the letter, I'm just turning back to the opening words, chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul introduces himself, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints which are in all Achaia. And then Paul writes down into the second chapter, again, if you'd like to look with me to chapter 2 and verse 4, clearly a back reference to the first letter he'd written, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. The apostle is seeking to underline his uh, love toward them and indeed his care for them as the Lord's people. This morning's message is quite simply entitled, A Letter from Christ, or A Letter from of Christ. And the first point I'd like to make is a very simple one, but it is the Apostle's concern. Back to verse 12 of chapter 2. 
Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother. It would seem that the apostle had arranged to meet Titus in the city of Troas. Titus was returning from the city of Corinth. He was like the messenger boy and he was going to return and he was going to provide Paul with up-to-date information. In other words, how had these Christian friends received that first letter? It's interesting here, the word, the place Troas is mentioned. We read of Troas in Acts chapter 16 whilst the apostle is on his second missionary journey. And you remember how he stopped in Troas and received that vision of the Lord, that vision of that man of Macedonia, calling him to come over into Macedonia and help us. And so Paul finds himself again in Troas, and he mentions immediately to preach Christ's gospel. He was above all else a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was his commission. This is what he had been called to do by God. And this is what he did. It was his single purpose in life. His overriding desire was to make Christ known to others. And to preach the gospel of Christ. And he mentions of a door, not a literal door, but he mentions a door here that was open to me of the Lord. And so it's as if this door has been opened to him that the Lord is confirming the apostle in his ministry and in his preaching. And the Lord is providing the man with every opportunity to preach Christ and him crucified. And here we have an immediate application for ourselves, brothers and sisters in Christ. You may not be called to be a preacher of the gospel, but you certainly have been called to be a letter of Christ, to be a witness to saving faith in our dear Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And also to pray for a door to be opened unto you. In other words, For the Lord to grant you an obvious opportunity to speak a word for him to another. To grant you a meeting, an encounter. Where you really feel prompted by the Holy Spirit of God to speak of Christ. To speak of salvation. To speak out of your own personal experience. And as a church collectively... We always need to be praying for a door to be opened unto us. The Lord has opened doors to this fellowship in Ripon over past years. And some of those doors remain open. For example, the visit to Colsterdale Lodge this afternoon. The open air preaching and so forth. But we always need to be looking to the Lord and asking him to open that door unto us. And the We feel within the spirit of the man, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus, my brother. He was so disappointed that this man would obviously been delayed and he had not yet brought news. Titus, my brother. Not his brother in terms of blood ties, but his brother spiritually. He was a co-believer. 
a co-laborer alongside of the apostle, Titus, his brother. And isn't that lovely to think that friends around us in this room this morning, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because they have had a similar experience of Christ. Because they have come to love the Lord and to know him and to follow after him. So we read here of the Apostle's concern. But then looking down, we come to the Apostle's commission. Verse 14. The Apostle is now moving into a long digression from verse 14 through to chapter 7 and verse 5. It is a lengthy digression. He's putting behind him what is is written thus far. And now there is this, as it were, unexpected burst of a hymn of praise unto God. Now thanks be unto God. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Little background for you here. You may be familiar with this, but the the picture is of a Roman general who has been successful in battle. He's returned to the city, perhaps Rome, or some other Roman city. He is returned as the conqueror, as the victor, and he leads a festive procession through the streets of the city. And there's the general at the head of the procession on his horse, and all his soldiers follow behind, and all the captives are there in their chains, and they are condemned men. At the end of the procession, they face execution. But lining the streets are all the people, and they are joyous, And they're applauding and they're excited because of the recent triumph. And there is a smell of incense, the burning of spices in the air. And so Paul is using this imagery. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. There's been some debate about these words. I don't have leisure to go into this in detail, just to give you the headings. Some people suggest that the point here is that God is leading Paul captive in Christ. That Paul is a servant. No, he's a slave in Christ. And he's been called to suffer even unto death. John Calvin puts it this way, that Paul had a share in the triumph that God was celebrating. I tend to lean towards a a modern version of the Bible here, and it reads, and I quote, Who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. In Christ always leads us in triumph. In other words, when we are serving the Lord, when we are about his work, when we are co-laborers with others in the ministry of the gospel, in the work of salvation to others. We often feel so weak and limited of our own powers and and capacities. And yet, here is encouragement for you, dear friend. Thanks be unto God. Praise God. For he is always leading us in that procession of triumph, as it were, that triumphal procession in Christ Jesus, so that we may know blessing and joy and encouragement in serving him. 
because as the scripture says elsewhere, above all these setbacks and disappointments, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And then we look at verse 14 a little further. He makes manifest the savour of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ. That word savour, we could insert the words uh, fragrance perhaps or aroma. For we are unto God a sweet aroma, a sweet fragrance of Christ. In them that are saved... And in them that perish. We reach here what many of us know all too well. That there are just two kinds in mankind. There are those who are unbelievers. And there are those who are believers in Christ. There are those who are being saved. And there are those who are perishing. And when we preach the gospel. And when we pass a Christian tract to a person or speak a word directly to that person about Jesus Christ, there's always going to be one or the other of those responses to that word. Of course, we're only the agents, we're only the instruments, the representatives, as it were, of the gospel. But verse 16 reminds us that to one we are the savour of death unto death, and to the other the savour of life unto life. So there we see those two responses to the, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That fragrance, that aroma, that in that sense, that spiritual way, should as it were permeate the Lord's children, the Lord's people, whilst we are witnessing and working for him. So we're thinking about an aroma here. I suppose I'm speaking on behalf of myself and perhaps many of you friends that we all rather appreciate the smell of freshly cut grass or of bread being baked, that lovely smell that that comes to us. But do we all appreciate the smell of curry? Perhaps some of you do enjoy curry. It seems to me that curry is one of those foods that people either love or they hate. I'm somewhere in between, by the way. And so we find here with the gospel that there is this savour of life unto life or death unto death. You see, to the one who does not respond positively to the preaching of the everlasting gospel or to the witness of the Lord's people, it is death unto death is the gospel. Because for that person, it means that they remain under divine condemnation and wrath. It means that they are heading for a lost eternity. Unless and until their lives are transformed. Because there is that heart of rebellion in the unsaved person, the hardness of heart, the fondness for this world and all its attractions and pleasures and so on. But it leads to eternal ruin and destruction. And these are solemn matters, friends. But to the one who it is a savour of life unto life, 
then, of course, that is the person who believes the gospel and who repents of sin and trusts in Christ's Christ and has eternal life and countless blessings. And this was the experience of those friends in the church of God at Corinth because they had become Christian people. And so we move on and the apostle asks a question of himself and who is sufficient of these things? And we look a little further into that shortly. Verse 17, but we are not as many, he's saying we are not as the false apostles and teachers which corrupt the word of God, but as of in sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. That word corrupt there, it means adulterate. It means that these false apostles and teachers were adulterating the word. The the thinking here is of a wine retailer, and they sneakily water down or dilute the wine because they're endeavoring to maximize their profit margin. And so the false apostles, they corrupt the word of God. In contrast, Paul, as of sincerity, as of God, they speak of God, they speak in Christ. The word sincerity means really, I think, literally, it is to examine something in the light of the sun. So whatever it is you're examining, you can see it very clearly. It's almost transparent, as it were, to your eyes. And that's what the Apostle is saying. He's saying, in response to some of these people suggesting or questioning his apostolic authority and integrity, he's saying, I am thoroughly sincere, I am transparent as a preacher of God's word. I do not dilute the word, I give it to you straight as it is passed on to me. So we see there that contrast between the true apostle and the false apostle. But then thirdly, the apostle's commendation, verse 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we as some others letters, epistles of commendation to you or from you? In the early days of the Christian church, quite often people if they were moving from one church to another, or even just visiting another fellowship for worship on the Lord's Day, they would carry with them a letter, a letter of commendation, that they had a good standing in their own fellowship, that they were true believers. The apostles say, no, we do not need to do that, verse 2, because you, you Corinthians, are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all people. Paul said, in effect, that I don't need to keep a letter in my pocket, a letter of recommendation from you or to you. You are in my heart, friends. Remember what he said earlier in chapter 2 and verse 4 when he was saying, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I write unto you. He had a pastoral concern for these Christian friends. And he He'd come to know them personally. He'd spent 18 months in the city of Corinth. And so therefore, he knew he could say that they were a letter written in his heart and known and read of all men. We read in Paul's letter to the Romans in the very opening chapter, 
these words. I'm reading chapter 1 and verse 8. Romans chapter 1 verse 8. Paul writes, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. That was the church at Rome. But it could also be said of the church at Corinth that your faith is spoken of widely that you have, in the proper sense, a good reputation. And I trust that could be applied to Zion Church here in Ripon. We're not wanting men's applause. We're not wanting to make a name for ourselves, not at all. But we do trust that this church is known widely. For what? For being an evangelical fellowship for being a reformed church in theology, for being known for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the apostle is saying that these people who had embraced the gospel, who had come to love the Lord, verse 3, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the apostle of Christ, the epistle of Christ ministered by us. This is the letter of Christ See the contrast here in the verse, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, such as the tables of the law were written on, but in fleshy tables of the heart. And so this is an inward experience, isn't it? It's an inward experience of the soul. And in terms of this letter of Christ... The Corinthian believers, they themselves are the contents. Their transformed lives, their continuing faithfulness to the Lord, their willingness to serve the Lord as they are granted opportunity, they're the contents. And other people can read that letter and they can read of those contents of those people. But of course, ultimately... Jesus Christ is the author of that letter. It is Jesus Christ who, with Paul, of course, and with Paul, with God's help, planted that church in the city of Corinth. And now the the law of Christ is written in their hearts, as it's written in our hearts. And the love of Christ is shed abroad in their hearts as it is in ours. And so do you not see, friends, that people look at you and I and they, as it were, see a letter. It's a letter from Christ. It's a letter of Christ. And in terms of Christ and the gospel, they may never read any other letter in these godless days. The only letter they will have ever read, possibly is of your life and of mine. And that's a solemn responsibility. In all our weakness and human frailty and tendency to shortcomings, we need the help of God. We need his daily grace to enable us to be those faithful witnesses. But notice, this letter is not written in ink, but with the spirit of the living God. A few months ago, I suppose now, I was walking around a a graveyard, you do these things sometimes, and uh, taking an interest. And I noticed quite a number of the headstones were dated, oh, 1850s-ish, going 
going by 150 or more years. And you try to read the headstones. Some of them were quite clear, and you could read them, but some of them in these little quiet corners that had been there perhaps much longer, you could no longer read the words. You couldn't read the person's name or their dates because the weather had ravished uh, and played havoc on that headstone and you could no longer read it. But you see, our lives, friends, and the gospel and salvation and all that that entails is written with the spirit of the living God because it's a permanent letter of Christ. It's designed to last for time and for eternity. And it's a life-giving letter because we've been born again from above by the Holy Spirit of God. And finally, the Apostles' confidence, verse 4, and as such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. That word sufficiency, we could insert the word compensation or fitness. But our sufficiency, our ability to preach, to witness, to serve, we trust through Christ to Godward. Our power, as it were, and all our help and blessing is only from God's good hand. And he strengthens us. And he enables us to do the work and we pray that he will bless us in all our spiritual endeavors. Verse 6, who also have made us able ministers of the New Testament, properly new covenant, not of the letter but of the spirit. For the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. There's an echo here of the old covenant. Of course, when the, uh, the law was written on the tables of stone, There's an echo here, or more than an echo, of course, here, an unfolding of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And one of the essential differences, there are other differences, between the old and the new covenant is, first, that the new covenant now embraces all people, every believer, not only Israel, not only the Jews, the Old Testament people of God, but Gentiles. And the other difference here is essentially that the new covenant is firmly based on the shed blood of Christ. The old covenant, of course, had its basis on the animal sacrifices and offerings that were so important in the old covenant arrangement. But now in the days of the new covenant, the New Testament church of the living God, then it is based on Christ Jesus, on his atoning work on the cross, of the laying down of his life, and particularly of the shedding of his precious blood. This was a fulfillment of the prophecy of the prophet Jeremiah. And I just finally move to those words and close with these words, really, in the book of the prophet Jeremiah and chapter 31. I just read a few verses here, words of prophecy, looking to the coming of Christ and of the new covenant. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, at verse 31, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and they will be and they will be and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And of course that extends now to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We just look and think about those Corinthians and of their experience as they came to faith. And in the same letter of Paul to the Corinthians, Second Corinthians, we read about this at chapter five. And verse 18, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And if any of us here, trust many if not all of us here, are in Christ, then we also are a new creature in him because of God's grace and infinite love toward us. The Apostles' concern, the Apostles' commission, the Apostles' commendation, and the Apostles' confidence. A letter from Christ. Amen.